welcome. You're listening to a sermon podcast from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. Well, we had dinner on Friday night with some friends who have two beautiful elementary aged school children. We had a great time, good conversation in their home, plenty of laughter. The youngest one, I think she was around five, she kept addressing me as Pastor Mike. And ever since our Izzy first started talking, I've been unable to resist the in place of the s that gets me every time. At one point, her big brown eyes looked right through me and she slightly grinned and tilted her head and she pointed at a scrape on my hand and asked, where did Owie come from? It's been a long time since anyone's asked me about my Owie's. I mean, I can only handle so much. I just hand over the mortgage to her, the keys to the car, the deed, you name it. But to be clear, the beauty of Friday night was not only in the cute factor these children brought, but in how these beautiful children reoriented Julie and me. It's not easy to explain. I imagine you've probably experienced it. Children teach. They shape. They reorient us. Friday night, Julie and I learned something about ourselves. We learned something about God. And much-needed healing happened somewhere in our souls, all from being with children. This is the time of year, as we just did here, when children and young people and families celebrate the end of school, celebrate graduations, the beginning of summer, a chance to be with friends and family, relax a little bit, maybe get some rest from the demands of life and work, and yet, as you well know, joy has once again been tempered by evil. On May 14th, a radical white supremacist murdered 10 black people and wounded three others in Buffalo, New York. And then this past Tuesday, May 24th, 19 children and two teachers were shot and killed by an 18-year-old boy driven by evil in his heart and who knows what in his mind. And these horrific acts of violence against the vulnerable of our society are deeply disturbing. I would suggest in some way they reveal a cancer growing in our collective and communal soul. And the whole ugly mess just breaks the heart and triggers intense grief. So here we are today celebrating, and it's good to do so, having fun, and it's good to do so, It's Memorial Day weekend. We're grateful for our nation and for the people who gave their lives for it. And yet we lament the sin that has jumped up in front of us this week. We lament the violence. We lament the unimaginable pain the families in Buffalo and Uvalde, Texas will carry for the rest of their lives. We lament the way we and our government leaders spend hours and days ferociously debating issues like racism and gun violence without actually doing much to prevent future tragedies. It's been a hard week, and I know many of you feel the weight of it all at unbearable levels. I've had enough conversations to know that for many of us, this hit really hard. And we should feel this as followers of Jesus. Not feeling it, I would suggest, is a bit of a red flag. 
How does a parent send a child to school after what happened on Tuesday? What's a Christian response to all this? What do we do about this? As I mentioned earlier, for the last several weeks, we've been in a series called Breathe Life, where we have been talking about breathing life into each other and into the world. As people who have experienced the love and the grace and the goodness of God as resurrection people, as we sometimes refer to ourselves, in whom God's life and hope are growing and flowing because of what he has done for us in and through Christ, we are to breathe resurrection life into each other and into the world. This is the work of the church. This is our responsibility. So we've been talking about various social practices throughout this series, various communal disciplines we as a local church engage in so we grow and become a community of life breathers, a new society led by Jesus into his way of life. This week, like many of you, I found myself grieving over the pain of this world, agonizing over the heartache these poor families now must carry, stumped by the impossibility of the task at hand, at frequently thinking about the church and thinking, what is it for? How does it address these things? And yet in the midst of it all, hopeful and determined to press on and to lead on in the confidence still that Jesus is real, God is good, love conquers evil, God is in control and he's working out his plan and somehow we, his church, are part of his plan. And believe it or not, today, in this series, we're talking about the spiritual discipline of being with children. And this was the plan long before Tuesday, May 24th, and it seems to me it's even more crucial now. So would you stand for our scripture reading? It comes from Matthew chapter 18. I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 5. It's on page 984 if you want to turn and follow along. Matthew 18. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child to him and placed the little child among them. And he said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. And to jump into this as we think about being with children, this practice of being with children, at least as it comes to us from this passage, we need to talk for a bit about prioritizing the person and the way of Jesus. Jesus' first disciples were afflicted with the same compulsions and addictions and pathologies we have. They were trapped in the same narrow paradigms we are. They were broken people like we are. So the disciples were preoccupied with status, power, winning. They were preoccupied with their status, their power, their winning. Other gospel accounts of this same story tell us the disciples just prior to this had been arguing about who was the greatest disciple. Who was ranked number one? Maybe something like, I think he likes me better than you. Things like this. They were caught in this pecking order game. 
And these disciples perfectly represent the human condition. This is what we do. My ambition, my rivalry, where do I stack up? Competition, pecking order, control. They wanted to know who is number one, so do we. They wanted to know who's at the top of the heap. That's what we often wonder about. They wanted to know who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And oftentimes we, both individually and communally, we are thinking about who's the greatest and how can I become the greatest. In the first century, just like today, status was a big deal. It signaled importance and it signaled influence. Jews, Gentiles, those categories carried weight one way or the other. Slaves, free, carried weight, status, religious Pagan, male, female, status for males, not so much for females. Healthy, sick, healthy is blessed by God, status. Sick is under some curse from God, no status. Rich, poor, rich must be rich because they've done something good. Poor must be poor because they haven't. Pecking order, status, old, young. These classifications fixed one's position and place in the system. And while children were certainly considered a blessing from God, they were down near the bottom of the status ladder. They had no power. They had no ability to influence. And maybe most importantly, they were completely dependent on their parents for everything. Food, shelter, protection. Without their parents, they had zero chance because they had zero power. We need to sit here for a second pondering what Jesus is poking at in this brief story. Apart from their parents, a little child in the first century had zero chance because they had no power. They were utterly dependent on their parents. So the disciples want to know how to be first in the kingdom of God. In the kingdom, they want to know who makes the headlines on Fox or on CNN or on an MSNBC. And reading between the lines, just letting our imagination sort of draw out what certainly seems to be there, it's fairly obvious these disciples are seeing the kingdom of God through the same power grid of the world. And lest we judge too harshly, we often do the same thing. They just happen to have the unfortunate circumstance of being on display for all of history to read about and observe so we can read about it, shake our head and go, man, how embarrassing these guys. But we are like them. Many Christian people today, I'm afraid, think the power system that drives our culture also drives the kingdom of God. So the way of the culture, many, unfortunately, I think, believe is the way of the kingdom. Power, status, winning getting our guy in the right political office, and all will finally be well. I hear this more today than I've heard it in the 31 years I've been doing this kind of work. Many Christians think the power system that drives the culture also drives the kingdom. I want to press into this a bit. My goal is not to annoy, irritate, offend, or any of that. I want to do this gently. I think we need to talk about this. Many Christians think the power system that drives the culture also drives the kingdom. We think power wins the day. So we look for ways to gain power, to have control, 
to win the game. And this might be one of our biggest sins and one of our most misguided notions. A Christian is someone who professes allegiance to Jesus and loyalty to his way and his kingdom. A Christian is someone who prioritizes Jesus, his person, and prioritizes the way of Jesus. But too often, I think, Jesus and his way are not really the first priority of some Christians. Power is. Winning is. Being right is. Being the greatest is. And this is the setting again for our scripture. This is what's going on in these guys as they're sorting this all out. And the Bible says right in the middle of it all, Jesus invited a little child to step out of the crowd and stand in the middle of this Christian gathering. Probably a child under 10 years old. And all she did was stand there as Jesus described the way things work in his kingdom. Here's what he said. Truly, I tell you, unless you change, he's not looking at her. He's doing one of these. Unless you change and become like little children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Simple point. The kingdom of God runs on different fuel. The kingdom is organized and functions and works completely different than our culture. The way of the kingdom is not the way of our culture. The way of the kingdom is not the way of the world. So any grab for power, control, or status is not reflective of the kingdom. Jesus is telling his followers the shocking truth that the way they are accustomed to doing life and religion and relationships and politics is not how things are done in the kingdom of God. The power and status and rivalry and division and separation and winning and competition and ambition games of the culture are not the way of the kingdom. So to be his follower, we must prioritize him and his way above everything else. We must lay down the way of the world and pick up the way of the kingdom. So, primary loyalty to American ideals or to my preferred political party must be secondary to Jesus Christ and to the way of his kingdom. Jesus wants to reorient me to his way, but I am often most passionate about reorienting him to my way. I read this not long ago, and it resonated, and it still resonates. If people know your politics more than your religion, then your religion is your politics. In this passage, Jesus and his way are colliding with the way of the world that is ingrained and embedded in these disciples. Do you see this? He and his way are just crashing right into the way of the culture that's just been built into these disciples. And he's turning their system on its head to reorient them to his system. I think this kind of systemic collision should be a regular occurrence in our Christian experience. It's not pleasant, but it is necessary. As we struggle and grapple with prioritizing Jesus and his way and how it contrasts and conflicts 
with the world and its way. So I have a confession to make. This week, I have wondered often what your first reaction would be or what some of you would think about first when I mentioned the tragedy in Texas. Here's what I was afraid of. This is what has been gnawing at me. I've been concerned, a little afraid, kind of worried that some of you, as soon as I said tragedy in Texas, the first thought you had was something like this. He better not push better gun legislation. And others of you have thought, he better push better gun legislation. Or some of you maybe have thought, he better not say, people kill people, not guns. Or others of you have thought, he better say, people kill people, not guns. Or others of you have thought, he better mention the mental health of the lunatic who committed this evil. And others of you have thought, he better not mention the mental health of the lunatic who committed this evil. And you know something? All those things and many, many others need to be on the table. They need to be prayed through, talked through, argued about perhaps, discussed with those whose priority is Jesus and his kingdom. But here's the thing. I'm not convinced those kind of unspoken ultimatums that go through our minds when certain words are said are driven so much by the priority of the kingdom as they are by some other priority. As it relates to the killing of 19 people last Tuesday, it seems quite obvious, and I don't intend this to be like all-inclusive, but it seems fairly obvious. If we ask the question, what does it look like to prioritize Jesus and his way in this situation that happened last Tuesday where 19 people were killed, or 19 children and two adults, it seems obvious that to prioritize Jesus in his way would mean we're going to mourn with those who mourn. We're going to grieve with those who grieve. We're going to pray for those who are suffering. We're going to help in any way practical we can those who are hurting. We're going to stand up and defend the defenseless and the vulnerable, in this case children. We're going to show compassion. We're going to lay down our lives and our rights For the sake of other people. We're going to think through gun violence. And try to find ways to decrease it. That seems like a prioritizing of Jesus and his way. We're going to try some things that we haven't tried yet. Because what we have tried isn't working very well. We're going to humbly talk these things out. With other people who want to follow Jesus. And especially, especially Especially we're going to talk it out with those who want to follow Jesus who see it differently than we do. Talk it out, not yell it out. Talk it out, not dismiss each other. Talk it out, not demonize each other. Talk it out, not write online posts about it. But face to face with each other. Because it's in those conversations with those who are different when God might open a space for us to grow and change. These all feel like decent starting points for prioritizing Jesus and his kingdom in the midst of this horrific tragedy. But defensiveness, I don't think that's prioritizing Jesus. An air of certainty, I don't think that's prioritizing Jesus. Yelling, dismissing, belittling, 
I know is not the way of Jesus. And it seems like those things simply advance the way of the world and increase the violence. So secondly, as we think about being with children, let's talk about it as an encounter with God. Jesus makes this wild statement in verse 5. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Wait a minute. What? I don't know how that lands on you. That might hit you because it kind of does me as, oh, that's one of those things the Bible says where the Bible's kind of just being the Bible. Gets a little nutty sometimes. Can't actually mean that. Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. My instinct is to strip that down so it doesn't mean what it appears to me because I don't know how to handle that. Seems to be saying, whoever welcomes a child in Jesus' name welcomes Jesus. Seems to be saying, when we're present and attentive to a child, in some way, we're encountering God. And our experience might clarify what he's talking about. For example, Friday at our friend's house, at times, had the feel, to me, of an encounter with Jesus. When the little one said to me, where did Thawi come from? It felt, well, felt sort of sacred. Countless interactions when my children were younger often seemed like an encounter with Jesus. Could it be? Welcome a child in Jesus' name. That phrase, in Jesus' name, sometimes comes across like a meaningless way to end a prayer or begin a gathering. But Jesus uses the phrase here, and I would suggest in Jesus' name establishes the terms. When we pray in Jesus' name, it sets the terms that we are praying in God's presence for his purposes, and we submit it all to his power as Lord and King. When we gather in Jesus' name, we are gathering in God's presence for his purposes, and we submit whatever is going to happen, all of it, to his power as Lord and King. These are the terms of the relationship. So when we welcome a child in Jesus' name, we are with the child in God's presence for his purposes, and we submit the entire relational space to his power as Lord and King. So there's really no way around this. Jesus is saying he is present and he is at work when we welcome a child in his name. So does there really need to be a lot of pushing for us to be with children? Dave Fitch puts it this way. The stunning reality is that being with children is an encounter with the living Christ. We set aside our striving and we quiet our need to control. We enter their space and tend to their presence. In their vulnerabilities, my vulnerabilities are exposed. In so doing, a space is opened up and Jesus becomes present and begins to work. So I'm going to drop down one more notch. When that little girl said, where dis we come from? You know what made it sacred? It felt like something God would ask me. Where'd that owie come from? What's behind that scar? What's the story in that wound? See, Jesus is really up to something in this story. He takes the least powerful one of the bunch and he invites her into the middle of the group and they all just look and see her standing there. 
And this is effectively what Jesus is saying. You don't think she matters much, do you? You don't think she offers much. You don't think she's very powerful. But she is the key to the kingdom. Because I, Jesus, come to you in the vulnerable. And if you welcome them, you will encounter me. If you're present to them, you will encounter my presence. Where does Awi come from? Life experience tells us this is true. Children, the poor, the suffering, the elderly. When we get around them and we're attentive to them, we experience God in those relational settings when we're there in Jesus' name. Lastly, being with children trains us in humility. Jesus says to his disciples, then and now, I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. There are times when I hear all the rhetoric and all the noise and all the yelling and all the screaming and hear the way in which there is division within the Christian community. I want to just like run this verse by with an airplane pulling it across the sky. Unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. He flips the world's power and status game right on its head. The greatest in the kingdom is the one who is humble and vulnerable like a child. So he's given them their answer. Who's the greatest? The greatest is the one who changes and becomes humble like a child. No status apart from God's love. No power other than what God gives. No influence, no ability to win, no need to impress, no power to coerce, no impulse to take. She's completely dependent on others. She's humble and she's vulnerable. If her parents don't provide, she's in big trouble. And this is the posture of a real Christian. The impulse to win to control, to gain power, to acquire status, to get our way, to prove our point, is being changed into the humility and vulnerability of a child. Why be with children? Because children will teach us a character quality that we need in order to live in the kingdom of heaven. And the rise of humility is a sign The kingdom is on the move. This is the posture of a church that's becoming a new society under God. Pursuit of winning, power, status, being right are being changed. And humility and vulnerability are growing in us. The greatest in God's kingdom looks like the smallest in the world's kingdom. The greatest in God's kingdom has the least power in the world's kingdom. Everything gets turned upside down. I've had the experience recently where just through my mind and through some personal interactions and conversations and relationships, I've been struck by this, that in some of these instances, I've been with people who do have a lot of influence and they have a lot of power and they have a lot of uh, status. And yet the prevailing, striking, pronounced attribute of their entire being is humility. 
It, it, it just speaks to where there is humility, the kingdom is at work. Welcome a child in my name. Become like a child and enter the kingdom. Would you pray with me, please? I recognize some of this perhaps dove into water you weren't expecting. That's okay. There is such depth and magnificence in the heart of Jesus to open us up and invite us in. This has been a difficult week, but we are gathered here today, and it is good we are to remember that we have hope because of who he is. We have hope because he is with us. We have hope because we belong to him. I just want to read you Psalm 146 before we close. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, my soul. I will praise the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. Do not put your trust in princes, in human beings who cannot save. When their spirit departs, they return to the ground. On that very day, their plans come to nothing. Blessed are those whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord their God. He is the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. He remains faithful forever. He upholds the cause of the oppressed. He gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the ways of the wicked. The Lord reigns forever. Your God, O Zion, for all generations. Praise the Lord. And we celebrate you on this day, our God and King. We bring the incredible words of this psalm and we pray them into the hearts. Pray them into the hearts of these poor families. Somehow show them that you remain faithful forever. Be near to them in ways that are concrete and real. We thank you that you are a God who loves, that we are people who have been loved by you. And in the midst of the lament and the pain and the strain and the agony, we indeed have joy because your love is greater 
than evil. Your life is more powerful than death. And we are resurrection people who are filled with your life and your hope and your goodness. So let us live this way and breathe life into one another and breathe life into this hurting world where there are people all around us with owies we cannot see. May we be a source of life-giving hope and healing. We love you, God. And we pray in Jesus' name.